Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and um, we are going to be talking with Dr. Rickard today um, about the heated task. This is our third show in HD Awareness Month, Um, and um, just kind of, we've had a a very good lineup uh, this month about different things that are going on globally um, for HD Awareness Month. So we've got Hugh Rickards on, who, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Laura. Could you give us just a little bit of a background of who you are? Okay, yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, well, I'm Hugh Ricard. I'm what's called a neuropsychiatrist. So I'm sort of trained in psychiatry and some neurology too. And um, that fits really nicely with HD because HD doesn't naturally fall into the category of neurology or psychiatry because it's You know, it's an inherited condition, but a lot of the changes are mental and behavioral changes, as well as physical changes, and some a whole bunch of things are not easily definable as either mental or physical. They're sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, So I'm a neuropsychiatrist. I've been mad about HD for about 30 years. I started off as a trainee, uh, getting interested in it, and um, as I've grown into my career, so I'm getting to this as a latter stage of my career. I've just become more and more focused and interested in HD. And my main thing at the moment is jettisoning jettisoning everything else and just doing HD all the time. Um, I also chair the executive committee of the England and Wales Huntington's Disease Association. So I'm just a massive hacking HD nerd. That's basically me. So... I also have 350 patients with HD that I look after. Oh, okay. That's awesome. So... Why HD though? Like, what what is it that really sparked this this passion for it? Um, well, I think I'm a, the first thing is I, by nature I'm a natural psychiatrist. And why, by being a natural psychiatrist, I mean I'm really fascinated by um, other or different states of mind or different types of behavioural ways of being. Um, I get really curious and fascinated by that. And with HD, I really found that a lot of people had really different mental states to my own. And I really thought this was a central bit of HD. And then we got a little bit distracted by the moving around business. And actually, that wasn't the big issue. It was sort of useful maybe 100 years ago for working out what it was. But it struck me now that really it's about changes in what the person was like as a person. That was the central issue. And that with, and, and that still fascinates me and I'm really interested in it and then I think I just fell in love with 
HD families, really, and HD folk, and the HD community as a whole. So I just <laughs> I got stuck in it, really. Which we certainly appreciate. Um, I have a I have a huge interest in it as well. Well, because I'm gene positive, but also just the neuropsych side of it. Um, I, I love it. I'd love to pick your brain someday because <laughs> I have a um, huge interest. Like I've done a baseline with my uh, with a neuropsych, so I have a baseline so I know um, when when I have changes and things like that. So, but all of that interests me, every bit of it. And um, and I think you're right. You know, there's this focus now on, or we're trying to get more focus on the cognitive side of things and the and what happens and, and the part that they're losing not not so much the movements, um, but the other part of the person. So I, I love so, that. So if I ruled the world, which I really don't at all, if I ruled, <laughs> I would just ban all discussion about Huntington's disease as a movement disorder. I just think the word movement disorder is a massive distraction from what's really happening. And it's sort of, um, it's, it's quite a concrete thing, movement. And the way human beings move is, is really complex, and it's to do with how they think, who they are as people. Right. And just to hide that off and call it a movement disorder, I think it's probably not helpful to patients. Because you're like, it's a movement disorder, so then what follows from that is we have to give them a treatment to make the movements go away. Right. And I don't think that's a really sensible way of going about things. Sometimes it is, but most times it isn't at all. Uh, and, you know, I just had this conversation with the FDA where if it came down to movements or the cognitive and psychiatric symptoms of Huntington's, you know, what would I say is worse? And I, I said, absolutely, cognitive and psychiatric. I said, movement to me, you know, that's so much less important, not, not to downplay the movements of HD, but when it comes to how the disease really affects you cognitively and and um behaviorally i mean it's just so much more important um on the whole i think that's true but i think also um you have to understand that uh my way of looking at it is uh unusual or disfluent movements or actions are a sort of social signifier of something more than being a problem in themselves in other words, if you move a bit or a bit shake, it's not the end of the world. It doesn't, except when it gets bad. Right. Early adult is not really a problem. But what it does, I think, is it, um, it's a signifier of not being well to other people or being a bit other or a bit different. I mean, you know, human beings are really good at spotting difference. Even small children can mm -hmm. say, that person's moving a bit funny. Mm -hmm. What's going on? You know, children are like that. They're frank. Um, and I think also that relatives and family members sometimes want the movements to go away because the movements are a reminder that that person is poorly. And so rather than the movements themselves being a problem, it's what they signify to other people in the wider society. But that shouldn't be a reason for making them go away. That should be just a reason for explaining it a bit better. I totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, let's get into your questions. We kind of got off topic because I just love this this topic. But um, <laughs> so you founded a task force through the EHDN called Huntington's Equal Access to Effective Drugs, also known as HEATED. What does this task force aim to do? Okay. 
yeah, it, it really goes back, and it's funny how history has changed, to the to the EHDN conference in Vienna. Uh, and uh, but now, gosh, was that two or three years ago? It feels like gosh. maybe it's two years ago. Anyway, yeah, whenever it was, remember. it was not, it's a little while back. And uh, it was at the time when I suppose we were at peak Ionis Roche hype moment, I think, and everybody was, and rightly so, because even allowing for what's happened recently, it's still an amazing step forward. It's still incredible. And people were talking about that. And there was a general air around the place like, okay, cracked it now, all sorted. Um, you know, we'll just go and everything will be fine. And uh, my concern at that stage, I've got different concerns now, but my concern at that stage is that, you know, in I was thinking in 2024, maybe there'd be an FDA license for this drug. And then everybody will go to their doctor and say, well, this drug is licensed. Can I have the drug, please? And probably less than 5% of those people who could benefit for it from it wouldn't get it. Um, so I know things have changed a little bit, but the, the principle is still the same. And when the original IONIS uh, trial was published in New England Journal of Medicine, I think 2019, I think it was May 2019, then Nancy Wexler wrote a lovely editorial with another guy called Fishbeck who always gets forgotten about because Nancy was writing it, I guess, uh, and she said, you know, we'll only have succeeded, you know, if this drug gets is widely available, for instance, to people in Venezuela and other places. So it's not just enough to make a good drug. As it turns out, maybe this drug isn't as good as people thought anyway, but that's slightly separate. It's identify what are the, the point of making a good drug is so that people can get it and be better. That's the only point of this. Mm -hmm. And it like in that meeting, people were being a little bit too, aren't we amazing? Which, fair enough, they were amazing. But it's like, okay, then there's another big task now, which is to say, what are the barriers to people getting access to drugs? And there's a million barriers. A million barriers. At the same time, I read a fantastic book by a journalist called David France called How to Survive a Plague. And that was about HIV in um in the 80s and 90s particularly it was centered around new york but it was a global story and about how the patient community with hiv started to really become aware of what think how things work and how systems work and that's the fda the nhr um, the companies the other the doctors the researchers and to become aware of the fact that they couldn't just sit there and expect that it was all just going to unfold and everything would be fine. They had to become active and become active participants because no of the, none of the other players were entirely representing their position. All the other players were, to a certain extent, representing the position, but they had a whole bunch of other constituencies and problems to think about that weren't necessarily directly patient-related. I don't mean that as a criticism. That's just natural world. Right. So the patients and their families in, in the HIV world, they had to become politically active to make sure that their voice was clearly heard. And they had a campaign, which you might remember, although you seem a little bit maybe young, I don't know. They had a campaign called ACT UP, which was, you know, they did some crazy things, actually, you know, breaking into the NIHR and all sorts of stuff to get access to documents that they weren't 
theoretically allowed to get to. And I'm not advocating that necessarily. <laughs> I'm just saying they became active politically. They made a noise. Right. And they savvy and they found stuff out and they called people out on stuff and they had information that they were, you know, they were a little bit more empowered, I suppose, in that situation. And at least partly as a result of that, you know, uh, they contributed to the fact now that HIV is really well treated around the world on the whole, with yeah. big exceptions, but, you know, amazing, what an amazing story. So I really like the idea of ACT UP. Uh, with being British, I wanted something that was a bit more understated, so I started the back for a long time, like, I've got to come up with a good acronym for this. <laughs> because it sounds like heated in British language, maybe it doesn't translate well to US English, heated is a sort of 1950s way of saying, oh gosh, we're all a little bit bothered about this. Yeah. Um, a little bit hot under the collar. It's yeah. Sort of understood. yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether it's translated well. Maybe it, it is, it's, it is, for sure. Yeah, we're, we're a bit heated, I say, we're all getting a bit heated here. Yes. That's got a British understatedness. And the, the idea of it was uh, to say, okay, what are the barriers between patients who need effective drugs and them getting the drugs, apart from the scientific barriers of finding a drug that works? What other barriers are there? And there's so many barriers out there. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I set up the heated task force. But I'd hate you to think that the heated task force is like a big office full of people who are paid <laughs> to do this. There is actually nobody at all. We don't have a budget. We have a group of people that meet from time to time. It's more of an idea than it is an organization. We don't have any paid staff. It's mainly me talking to people and triggering people to have ideas. It's an idea and a way of developing the story. So now I've talked to you about it. So you're already part of Heat of that Lives, even though you don't know it. Oh, and I love it. So, you know, now we take we take this uh, this no you know, this one person task force and, and we grow it, right? That's that's what yeah. we do in the H D community anyway. We take one thing and we yeah. we run with it. So um, you know, that's that's what we're gonna try to do. So do you have it, it, it went wrong it went wrong a little bit to start with because at a European anti disease network level and they would say, What about access to drugs? And they say, Oh well, Hugh and Eaton, they've got all that sorted out like we were a thing that did stuff. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's the wrong way around. It's like my job is just to bring it to everybody's attention, and then we all have to do it together. Right, <laughs> right. It's a it's a collaboration. It's not the task force doing it by itself. Just making you aware. <laughs> so, do you have current projects that you're working on um, there right uh, now, or has the focus been on what's been going on with Roche and Generation HD One? We will come to that. But yeah, that has. I don't think it's essentially changed our task, actually. It's it's slightly taken the sense of really extreme urgency out of the task, but it's still a moderately urgent task, I think. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, not when the Roche notwithstanding, you know, we're in a completely different field scientifically than we were even five years ago. There's queues of biotech companies trying all manner of things, we know from Roche, you know, we can reliably lower mutant Huntington in the brain, right. you know, and in a dose-responsive way, and that's a completely new reset point. Um, and 
we've got people with money to invest who are really interested in this area. So, and I think that's that's an important thing to know is that we have people with money who want to invest because I think that um, you know those of us. So I, I will be very honest. I was very disappointed and uh, depressed when Roche um, halted the study. Um, it affected me very badly. And I lost a lot of hope because, you know, that's we've been listening for several years now about, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the big thing. This is, you know, and so much money was put into it by Roche. And I thought it was going to be the big thing. Right. And then it's halted and it's like, oh, no, well, they just spent a ton of money on this. So they're not going to come back and try to try to help again. You know, it's it's going to be, it's going to be okay. Well, it didn't work. We're not going to waste any more money. Right. So that, cause it's, that's my thought. So to hear maybe, you, maybe, but maybe not. We'll see. We'll, right. We'll actually come on to the road specific things. Right. So, but to hear you say that though, is there, there are people, there are, there is money out there and they're interested. So um, that makes me feel better, you know, just knowing how the process works and that you've got to have that money in order to develop this stuff. Um, and the, the interest and the potential for profit for companies. Of course. So they, That's their bottom line. They've got to, right. Bottom line is they've got to have, they've got to put a lot of money towards it, but they've got to be able to get money back. And if they're interested, that's a good course. thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you were asking me about what Teeth had done so far. Well, I guess the first job we had was to identify what we thought the barriers were. And there's some very basic things out there, like, we don't really have a good definition of how many people have HD or even what we really mean by HD. You know, like how do you, what the diagnosis means. So we went really back, we've gone really back to that epidemiology and diagnosis. Um, so that's a big piece of work that we're doing, um, which I could probably spend an hour talking to you about. Like, what does it mean to say HD has started or you've got a diagnosis? And the answer is there's many different ways of saying this is a diagnosis. And diagnosis has many different functions. And according to what the function is, you may get a really different number of people who would fall into the category of HD. Yeah. Like if you had the, the, if you define Huntington's as those people who could potentially benefit from, let's say, RNA suppression treatment, that's a big old number. That's a big number, yeah. But then if you have, you find HD as those people who have got chorea or dysphonia that's discernible to the human eye, it's a much smaller number, mm-hmm. but we know now, somebody said, I think, uh, I forget it was, one of the preclinical scientists said, diagnosing HD um, by visibly recognizable career or dystonia is a bit like diagnosing diabetes when you've had your first limb amputated. Yep. <laughs> so right. <laughs> it's like, this is such an old outdated way of doing things and looking at things it's a really yeah so we've got to be more nuanced about that so if you so i guess that diagnosis thing that we've been working on has been like okay we're going to have different numbers for the number of people who have hd depending on where you know what we decide we mean by hd and so we're that's a model that we're continuing to work on actually so that a company may come out with the drug for instance that works for a certain group of people with HD, and so our model hopefully will be able to generate well, what's the number of people with that? That's because that's great. important to knowing how to give people treatment. Absolutely. So that's a big epidemiology job. 
uh, and a, a talk about what diagnosis really means. The other one is outcome measures. So I always say with outcome measures, um, it's like a Ferrari with stone wheels, like the Ferrari is molecular biology. You know, it's amazing. It still gobsmacks me. You, know, you can, you know, even the roasting, which didn't turn out well, even to know you could give a bit of molecular gubbins into somebody's central nervous system and it specifically hones in on the HD protein RNA and, you know, disables it or turns it down. Right. That's still gobsmacking to me. That's amazing. It is. It's amazing. But yes, if you look at the sorts of outcome measures we're using, like the total functional capacity or the UHGS motor scales, these are primitive in the extreme, I think. They're, they're not very well formulated or they're not very sensitive. So that's a big potential problem that we're not even measuring outcome very well in a meaningful way. And the, the potential barrier for that is there may be people who benefit from medications, and because we're measuring it wrong, we'll miss it. Or we may go, might go the other way, that we might think it's doing really well when it isn't. Right. And then you think, well, why have we got this massive blind spot? Why are we so good at molecular biology and so poor at rating scales? And I think the reason is because we've let science get on with it, and science is naturally interested in certain things and is naturally funded to do certain things and not naturally funded to do other things. So we've sort of let it get on, let science get on with it, if you like. And science has been brilliant at funded science that people are really interested in, right. molecular biology. That doesn't need, you know, that's going fine right now. Not really interested in rating scaleology, which is a very dry subject, if we're honest. I'm not that personally interested in it. But I do recognize it's a major barrier, whether it's not to do with whether I'm interested in it or not, it's to do whether it's a barrier and it's a barrier. Right. And the same applies to all those stuff about health economics and burden of care and all that stuff. So that really plays into whether health systems will decide to pay for something or not. Mm-hmm. You know, it has improved your quality of life or your function. Right. And we're in a super primitive place about that, I would say. That's, you know, the FDA, the EMA, NICE, all those bodies that decide, you know, who, whether drugs get paid for or not. I think the data that's coming into them to make those decisions is either really, really poor, we know it's really, really poor, or it's, we don't know whether it's any good or not, but we sort of suspect it's not very good. I'll give you an example of that. There's a rating scale called, rating scale called the EQ5D, which is a rating of quality of life, mm-hmm. which is used by a, a, a global group called NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which sort of does a lot of this work, like is a drug cost effective. And it's basically involved giving a patient a piece of paper saying, you know, how are you getting on with your walking or your dressing or does something hurt or how are you feeling in yourself? Right. It's very, very basic. Yep. It's not HD specific at all. Some of the questions are really, and the patient has to fill it in. So if the patient is somewhat lacking in insight or understanding, you know, I have plenty of patients who say they're completely fine, but they really aren't at all. So it may turn out that as they're getting worse, they score this as if they're getting better because they're losing their insight or understanding. Yeah. So we just have no idea about that. So I guess a lot of the work's been like, well, how best do we do that? There's loads of data out there. 
like all the clinical trials we've done so far, have placebo arms. In other words, people got the sugar pill in the trial, and we gathered loads of data on quality of life, and it's never been analyzed. Because the job is to get hold of all that data and analyze it to see which of those scales really work and are sensitive to change in HD. And that work is ongoing. It's pretty dry. It's where you know, all that stuff lives in a place now. Most of it lives in one place. And then getting access to it and getting someone to analyze it. That's important work to be done. So that's, again, identifying a barrier. What's the barrier? That's the barrier. We're not measuring that well. We've got a chance that our drug will look really bad when it's good. Or possibly the other way around. Neither, neither of those is a good outcome. So we have to identify that. So there's that bit. Then I guess it's intrathecal, in other words, cerebrospinal fluids delivered to treatments. Then there was a whole issue there about, okay, that's a capacity issue because neurologists don't give treatments into the cerebrospinal fluid as a rule, except in very rare occasions. So that would all have to be dreamt up from the beginning. Gotcha. You're working on a lot of stuff, you know, and that's amazing. And, uh, even the dry stuff, it's so necessary. You know, I, I was no, actually it, thinking it that. And it's stuff, like, who's going to do the dry stuff? Because there's not a lot of money in doing it. Mm-hmm. There's no biotech companies that stand to make much out of it. Right. A lot of scientists aren't really naturally drawn to it because it's not, honestly, unless you're really nerdy, it's not that interesting. But it's just really, really important. It's just really, really important. That's right. And I guess what I would say, that's where patients come in, because patients and their advocates should be saying to their scientific community, we don't care how dry you find this. We need you to do it. Right. We don't care whether you're interested. I mean, health scientists are interested. We need to incentivize the scientific community to get more interested in this, rather than just relying on them to get on with it. If you just leave them be, they'll keep doing molecular biology forever. Right. So we have to find some way of leveraging the scientific community as a whole. Because there are people out there who will do it. Oh, yeah. We have to a political decision to try and prioritize it somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. So let's focus a little bit on um, what happened with Roche, with Generation HD1. Uh-huh. And um, what are your thoughts on you've, – you've kind of delved into this a little bit on what happened and what we can learn from it. Okay. Um, okay, I have, I have a few thoughts. The first thing is, I've said this before, is we shouldn't throw the Tommy nurse and baby out with the bathwater. That's number one, is we can reduce mutant H Huntington in brains of people with Huntington disease. That's still gobsmacking. It's still amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's a new reset point, which is way in advance of anything we could have dreamt of 10 years ago. I know for people like you who carry the gene, it's, you know, science is moving really quick, but for you, it must feel incredibly slowly and really frustrating. And I totally get that. Um, It's not that it's moving incredibly slowly. It's that um, when we have something like this happen where it's halted, it feels like we're starting over. So because we're not, we're really not starting over. Right. But that's, I mean, the feeling that I had, and I know that now, but when everything was, was released, it felt like, okay, well now we have to go back to the beginning because they've halted the study and 
So if we're looking at another study, it's going to be having to recruit again. It's going to be, and I didn't think about the information being used elsewhere, right? I was just thinking we're starting over. Um, but you're right. It's not starting over. It's just um, it's a start. really new yeah. reset. There is a question, I think, um, about whether or not we gave patients too much of the drug and that the problem was, you know, we, uh, maybe overdose is the wrong word, but I guess in a very specific way that isn't overdosing, um, which was done in good faith, I think. But it turns out it's at least possible one of the explanations is that we gave people too much. And of course, what follows from that is that there may be a point in the middle, like a Goldilocks moment, where Tommy Nelson could do some real good in terms of lowering Huntington without any of the other bad things from happening. And I think that still remains to be uh, looked at because we haven't seen the biomarkers yet. We've only really seen the clinical outcomes. Right. We haven't seen what's happening to Huntington in the spinal fluid and these other sorts of inflammatory markers like neurofilament light chain. We haven't seen where they're going yet, and we won't see that for maybe another four months or so. Okay. So we won't really know that, and I guess the company should wouldn't be expected to make a decision about that until that's really clear. Which makes sense. Um, so I guess what could possibly happen is if there's a signal of one kind or another, it may be that uh, Roche or another company might go back and say, well, let's do some more dose, looking at different dose ranges of Tominersen to see whether or not there's a Goldilocks dose that does the good things and not the bad things. Um, and then there's a whole load of things. I think, okay, we can reduce the mutant Huntington. What happened with these other things like the ventricles emerging and um, the inflammatory markers. What does that all mean? How do we understand that? And I think we're only just starting to think about that now because it's pretty early days right. on that front. And so that's going to help us know that. So this is where we come into lessons learned. Um, I think, and this is a personal view, I think companies on the whole, and you know, Roche in this case, but I think all companies, big, big companies, would rather go at a clinical problem in what they would admit to being an aggressive way. In other words, go at it hard, go for the biggest dose they can tolerate. But there's a, one of the reasons for that is they want a quick result. Some of that's for patients, but also that's part of the business model. Mm -hmm. They'd rather go at, I don't know, 20 diseases or 20 treatments really hard and, and in the hope that one of them will really pay off for them in the business model. Right. It's probably a better business model to do that than it is to take your time. Because you remember, Roche are thinking there's a bunch of competitors coming up on the rails quickly with oral treatments that are easier to take. You don't have to have a needle in your spine, you know. And so they must feel that in their boardroom, I guess. You know, if you're going to get make money out of this compound, you've got to go quick and you've got to go fairly hard at it. But that's more of a risk, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And this is a really good example where um, a company boardroom and your living room may have different views about what the best thing to do is. <laughs> yeah. You know, we really need companies, don't we? Absolutely, because without them, we would be really stuck. We wouldn't even have a treatment 
at all, that they have different, or they may have different priorities to us. Like, I'll give you another for example. Um, actually, before I give you that for example, I would say the people I think need to do the most reflecting about this are the scientific community, actually. That's people like me and the, the you know, the, the big scientific communities in, in um, around the world in HD. Because I think companies are doing what companies do. You know, they make hard-headed business decisions about treatments. And I think patients naturally want to get things done quickly because they want that drug ASAP, please. I don't blame them for that. But I think in this case, with the benefit of hindsight, I know, which is easy, I think the scientific community, that's people like me, should have said, hang on a bit. We should have said more forcibly to companies, hang on a bit, let's take a bit more time, even three or four more years, and do some really good detailed dose finding studies before we go on to our phase three big study. Right. I know it's really easy to say in hindsight, and I would say slightly in our scientific community's defense, we're not used to working with drugs that have a potential to work in Huntington's disease. This is new for us. Right. I look back now and I really feel like as a community, we should have been involved in damping down the hype a bit and saying to the company, I know you want to go ahead with phase three and that fits your business model really well. And you know, the data are fairly supportive, but we think you should take a more conservative approach. We think you should go to dose finding and do a whole range of dose finding stuff and take a bit more time over it. We'd have probably been unpopular with the patients too, because they're like, we want our drug now. And the so it was a funny sort of alliance. But I think when I look back, I think the scientific community should have been, they should have taken that responsibility and gone, okay, it's great, it's amazing. However, we need to take our, take more time. Well, and I think you're right. You know, the scientific community is against two different groups of people and organ, you know, an organization, large organizations that want to move fast. And then you've got the Huntington's community and a lot of the people who work, a lot of the scientists who work with the Huntington's community have a passion for Huntington's because they're dealing with families. So they too see that, you know, this huge need and wanting to get it out. And um, it's hard. It's, it's just so hard. Um, but you're right. Like at what point do we sit there and say, let's slow it down for a second. Let's be, you know, cause it's, I'm the same way. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what's my age? You know, when am I going to get symptoms? My dad just passed away from Huntington's in January. So you have all of these things and you, you want to rush, but if it's rushed, then it's not going to help. And it's hard not to take a step back. And you know, that approach worked really well with another disease, spinal muscular atrophy, you know, because they're been rather, you know, that approach was taken and it paid off. It was a gamble. Right. And it paid off. And now they've got a drug that, you know, works pretty well in a way. And there's all sorts of caveats to that. But, you know, they went they went aggressively at it, they got a the treatment, they stopped the trial halfway through, not because it didn't work, because it worked so obviously. It wasn't ethical to carry on with the trial. So that's a, it was a gamble that paid off. Right. But you, I mean, if you were going to be rational, you would say, well, maybe they should have done the same thing, you know, taken their time. Uh, 
but then they strap lucky, both for the patients and for the company, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think you're right when it comes to the hype of it. Um, you know, I don't blame the scientific community for being hyped up because, uh, and, and us being hyped up because of the fact that this is, this was new for us, right? Like this was, um, and, and you guys are just as much in this as we are. Right. We're humans. <laughs> right. So we want to hear, we want a hopeful story. I know it's a bit, it's a bit easier for scientists because they can walk away at the end of the day, which is harder if you carry the issue. But nonetheless, we're invested, most of us. Yeah. You know, the community, they're good people. They really just want to just get on and they're fascinated by biology and other things. And they want a, hope, a hopeful story just like everybody does. And I want to tell a hopeful story to my patients in clinic when they come in. Right. And so being able to say to my patients, I've been doing this for 30 years, being able to say to my patients, you know, there's a possibility of a drug being licensed that could modify this disease. I'm desperate to tell my patients that every day. Yeah. I am. Yeah. It'd be scared not to, wouldn't it? But at the same time, I think, um, I think part of the problem is in the Huntington's community is, is the fact that we don't understand all of the processes and, and the science behind everything, right? We don't, a lot of people just don't have the time to try to understand it. And so um, breaking it down or just the transparency of, of things is so important to us um, just because, because of the fact that we, um, we need to, we need to know how fast something's going to be. Right. So if we keep, if we keep hearing, oh my gosh, this is going to be great. Oh, we're moving fast. Everybody starts thinking, okay, well, that automatically means this is going to work. But, you know, that's the part where if the transparency of because we're moving fast doesn't necessarily mean this is going to work. It means we're taking a huge risk, you know, and what you just explained, this is, we're, we're going to take a gamble here. May or may not work. Now we could pause and, and do this longer process. But we'd have a more, um, we'd have a better understanding of whether or not it would work, right? So less risk takes more time, but could end with better results compared to going ahead and gambling it. And this is what I mean is, this is why the patient community needs a voice somehow in that yeah. process, because otherwise it's going to end up, the main decision will get made up and made in the boardrooms of companies. Yes. Who've got a, got a lot of, they're not saying they don't want a successful drug, of course they do, but they have a bunch of other priorities too. Right. It's really, we've got to learn quick because this is new for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I guess, in terms of what happens in the future, these are some of the things that might happen in the future. For instance, it might be that when the data from this particular trial is known about more, it might turn out that certain subgroups or people with certain characteristics might still really benefit from this drug, even at that dose. But it's at least possible that it might not be in the commercial interest of the company to pursue that. Right. And so that's, and so they might just be, okay, it's not worth us, us investing. But as a community, we really want to know that, if that's the case. Yes, yes. We really want to know that. 
because there may be other companies that want to take that on. Exactly. But this is why I say the patient community has to, oh, it's difficult because you've got busy, busy lives, extra busy probably in those cases. And so it's like, God, you're asking me to do another thing as well on top of all the things I have to do. But but see, that's why I do what I do, right? So I've been involved in the Huntington's community since I tested. And um, when dad got sick, I had to slow down because I had to take care of him. But ultimately, I continue. I try to find a way because we have to be able to make the difference. I mean, we've got to get people to listen. And um, so it doesn't matter how busy I am. If that means participating in clinical trials, if that means seeking out to FDA, if that means whatever, I mean, I'll, I'll work it out because it's needed. Otherwise we don't get where we need to be. I just wanted to say something about what a place in the system that really, really has worked well and that we can learn from that too, because it's worked super well. And that's about independent data monitoring committees. You know, when this, when Roche News first broke, mm-hmm. and there, there was a lot of talk about independent data monitoring committees and they decided to stop the trial and, you know, certainly me, I was like, well, who the heck are these people? Yeah. <laughs> and what rules do they have and what right have they got to stop the trial? Or, and, you know, what's this process and who decides and what are the rules? I was getting quite heated about that myself. Yeah, me too. I want to email these people and say, what do you think you're doing? Now, as it turns out, they did exactly the right thing. And the process was that they're independent from the other decisions they have the unblinded data. They're a separate body. So that structure is fantastic. But they can review the data independently of any sort of commercial pressure and just come out and say, okay, the data clearly show you can't carry on with this according to, you know, an accepted standard. Now, once I saw the data, it was clear that they made absolutely the right decision, disappointing though it was. Mm-hmm. So we've got a really nice process in place there, I think, which is independent scrutiny of data and then the ability to make a recommendation that sort of has to be adhered to. So I guess something that's come out of this for me is a real respect for that process, that there's an independent scrutiny of trials, which has power to say this is not occurring in the interest of patients anymore, so you've got to stop. And I sort of really, yeah, it, that was, I had faith in that bit of the system to work really well in the interest of patients. Well, that's good. That's good to know because I was the same way where I was like, what in the world? What is this, you know, this organization doing? You know, they're reviewing it. Do they know anything about Huntington's? Do we need to contact exactly. them? Yeah. I was totally like, no. <laughs> I was like, do I find their email addresses? Like, what do I need uh-huh. to do to contact them? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I found out who they were. <laughs> I found out exactly who they were and where they are. Totally respectable, you know, absolutely rock solid people doing absolutely the right thing. Well, um, it's good to know though that, as you you said, they were. It's not in the benefit of the patient, and that's what they were focused on, and it wasn't. Yeah an organization, like a business-related decision. Yeah, there was no business in that. It was just, you know, all you have to do is eyeball a couple of the graphs to say, okay, they clearly did the right thing, and nobody would have done any difference. 
and thank goodness that they're in, that's an that the system allows independent scrutiny and power with teeth, and I think that's great. Yeah, that's very good to know. Very, very good to know. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for coming on and talking oh, with me. I, I wish I could talk to you for hours. I really, I really yeah, could. <laughs> um, and I might have you on again at some point. You might want to. I, I might have you on again at some point just so we can talk because I, I love talking with you. You're um, just an amazing person. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> So absolutely. So I'm going to end the show here. Um, our next show um, next week is going to be on the next generation of HD warriors. Um, so make sure to tune into that. Um, I want to, you know, we're going to have a little bit of a focus on those babies being born that are HD free babies, but they are being born into Huntington's families and, um, you know, learning about HD from, from the begin very beginning um, you know, my kids, my daughter's three years old. She's already aware that not what Huntington's is, but, you know, that Papa was sick. And um, and even today, even uh, after he's passed, like she'll see a wheelchair and and say, um, that's Papa's. So, you know, she realized something was wrong. Um, she actually even mentions falls and things. So we're going to, we're going to delve into that into the next generation of HD warriors and our, our babies that are going to be fighting for us as they um, become adults and grow up. Um, and I hope that everybody is having a great HD awareness month. And um, I just want you guys to know that I love you and I'm here for you and uh, we will talk to you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.helpforhd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications. 